Hello, my friend. Before we start this amazing episode, I want to invite you to the personal Patreon page of this podcast. If you love what's being done here and want to keep the podcast and the meditations free to the public, then you can come on over to our brand new community on Patreon and donate $11.11 a month and all proceeds will go towards keeping this free, keeping this going. Plus, we'll be building a community together and I'll give you bonus material. You can explore this option in the description of this podcast or just go to patreon.com slash Dr. Reese. Let's begin. Welcome to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese, a program that can help you become liberated in the modern world. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin W. Reese. So, can you eliminate your problems if you eliminate yourself? Welcome to episode number 108. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Chris Niebauer. He's a university professor and the author of the book, No Self, No Problem. In this talk, we dive deep into how the self works, what this ego really is, and how we think ourselves into problems. So sit down, relax. And take in this beautiful and valuable recording. Let's begin. Dr. Niebauer, welcome to the podcast. No self, no problem. How is there no problem if there's no self? One of the oldest questions out there, who am I? Mm-hmm. Know thyself. What are your problems? I mean, it's a strange thing, you know, when we talk about it, it's your problems, you know? I mean, do you really lay awake at night worrying about someone else's problems? So if you do away with the self, or if you see through the self, if you see the self for what it is, which is really just a thought, those problems tend to go away with the concept of the self. A lot of people especially here in the West, have trouble wrapping their head around this self, though, this ego. The thing that I go through in the book, and actually, I'm, this is actually the focus of my next book coming out, is to give an idea, kind of a backstory to the self. Where did it come from? Um, why does it feel so real? For many people, it's almost impossible to imagine that there's anything else going on. But we know from experience and we know uh, that uh, so many people have had this experience of, of seeing through the self, of seeing through the story. Uh, and I know from teaching this, uh, being a college professor and, and lecturing on uh, topics of neuroscience, it's one of the things that help valid source of information. So when we, so I could give you hundreds of examples of individuals who will relate their experience of the self. And when they see through it as just a thought, their problems seem to go away. So with neuroscience, you know, this this kind of, you know, our brain is very powerful. And in fact, I was just doing some studying on Dr. Sarno. He helped people heal their physical problems by changing their belief systems and you know their mind body connection that's powerful stuff that our brain can actually create a back pain <laughs> i tell my students that it's kind of remarkable that you can't get a phd in the placebo effect and it's very common when people talk about the placebo effect they say well that's just the placebo effect as if it's trivial or it's just a nuisance. In fact, a lot of science, and if you look at how we set up an experiment in psychology, we set up control conditions because the placebo effect is so powerful, we need to control for it. Mm. And so, so much of science is looking at it as like a nuisance, and yet it's this amazing mystery. One of my favorite studies, and you may have 
seen that one with the uh, people with knee surgery. So these are individuals who had such bad knee pain that some of them were in a wheelchair mm. and they split the groups up. Half of them got a sham operation. Uh, so everything was exactly the same. Uh, their belief that they were getting the operation, but they didn't do the actual uh, procedure that under the kneecap that was responsible, that they believed was responsible for lessening the pain. And of course the other half had the actual surgery and there was no difference when it came to pain reduction, both groups had equal pain reduction. In fact, the best uh, example is a guy who was in a wheelchair after this, and he had the sham surgery. So he did, he was in a placebo group and he was dancing with his wife after the surgery, no pain. Yeah. And that should just have us like, that is so powerful. And that should be, you think that would be the cover of magazines. Like the placebo effect is something we need to really investigate. It's, you know, and just, Placebo might be a strange word for some people that aren't familiar with it, pushing that to the side and just getting to the simple core. We're talking belief. It's, it's your belief. It's your belief that you're getting the surgery that alleviates the pain. It, it's how, how, how did Michael Jordan do as good as he did? He had an incredible belief in himself, a confidence. At least from my and the really interesting thing about all this is that, that those kind of beliefs actually don't come from what I'm calling the self or what I'm calling the ego. In fact, sometimes you'll find, um, you know, the ego is trying desperately. And this is why sometimes um, when people choke, you know, that's a very interesting scenario too. Um, you're under pressure and you really know you have to perform. And those are the moments when that internal dialogue starts. And we become so concerned with the internal dialogue that we end up missing the shot. Mm. And that's wonderful thing about real, those athletes that are quote in the zone, you know, when they get in the zone, the wonderful thing about what's happening in that scenario is that the thinking mind is, is just off. They're not thinking, you know, they, they, everything is happening perfectly. Their, their body is doing exactly what it knows to do and it's doing it flawlessly because they're not caught up in that internal dialogue. They're not caught up in that thinking that creates the self, that creates the uh, self-criticism, the self-doubt that we come up with. And, and they're doing rather than thinking about doing. And that leads to some really wonderful performance. And, um, and of course, the, if you've ever had that state, you know that while you're in it, you're really not thinking about the outcome at all. Right. So in order to get rid of this self or at least tame it, there's quite a, quite a bit of chipping away one has to, to do because they spent 20, 30, 40, 50 years as this ego, as this personality. They have personality traits. They may be caught up in the dream in their head. And then you come along and you say, well, <laughs> no self, no problem. Mm -hmm. that's really difficult concept for them. There's a, there's a really interesting paradox when it comes to the way the self works. A few people have brought it up. I've noticed um, Aldous Huxley brought it up. Um, Alan Watts brought it up. Mm -hmm. uh, they call it the, uh, like the effect of the opposite effect of intention, something like that, or paradoxical intention. Uh, Victor Frankl, uh, who wrote the meaning, um, uh, the man's search for meaning. Uh, he brought it up too. He called the paradoxical intention. And the interesting thing about all this is that when you really try to go effort in a, in a certain direction, the mind seems to fight back in the opposite direction. It's just like if I say, don't think of the number 13 right now. And, and, if, and if you know, you know, something bad will happen if you think of the number 13, that's, then that's all you can think about. So when I say, if you're going to go on this adventure, uh, there's a sort of a cautionary thing. Like the, the more effort you put into getting rid of the self, don't be surprised if the exact opposite happens. You might end up building a huge self or sometimes the self is very clever. It, it will hide in these other manifestations. So some people go on a quest for, to end the self and they'll call it spirituality. But in the end, uh, they'll end up having a, an even deeper uh, fixation on the self. Um, and uh, so, so, you know, there's a whole bunch of kind of cautionary notes that uh, I would tell someone who's starting off on 
of this path, but I would get to the origin. So in my new book, this is where I go. I'm like, what are the origins? Where did the self come from? Mm. Have we always had a self? What's its story? Why is it so persistent? And why is it, why is it the cultures vary? Like some cultures are very self, you know, if you grow up in a certain culture, it's going to teach you to embrace the self and, and, and all of its problems. That's not true for every culture. Hmm. There are huge cultural differences where some cultures are actually, they don't encourage this idea of a self. And so there's a little bit of flexibility as a human being, but the process of creating a self can be linked back to the process of thinking. And you say, okay, well, thinking, you know, if, if, if you're in the West, you know, you might be familiar with Descartes' famous phrase, I think, therefore I am. I am yeah. And so we put, we put thinking as the pinnacle of human experience and to be smart, to be a clever thinker. I mean, these are all things that are just, we just assume are universal values. Um, but we, one of the things that may not be obvious to people is that it's the process of thinking that creates the self-illusion. Yeah. And so I tell people, go back to thinking. And there's some wonderful, um, I think it was Graham Hancock who actually said that humans have uh, kind of an amnesia for our past. And we, we, we think we just kind of, you know, came on the scene and, and it's always been like this. There's always been Wi-Fi and there's always been social media. And, um, and so we forget that human history goes back We've been on the planet for about two and a half million years. Our version, Homo sapiens, has been around for about 100 or 200,000 years. But the thing that most people, at least when I talk to students, that is a surprise to them is that we've only been thinking the way that we think mm. for about 40,000 years. Mm. That's a tiny, tiny yeah. little bit of the history of the universe. Yeah. And so this process that gives rise to the self is a really new thing in the universe. It's a, it's a really, uh, it's a new trick. And so there's, there's so many tricks about thinking that, um, well, if you look just in the last 20 years, look at cognitive behavioral therapy, I mean, there's an entire therapy that centers around the recognition that your thoughts are the problem that you have a thinking, that most of us have a thinking problem. Thoughts create the emotion or the feeling. And change your thoughts and change, you change your existence. Yeah, yeah. Change. So if you're starting off on all of this, um, be very, learn to be the observer of your thoughts. And you'll start to recognize so many interesting things about the thinking process. There's a certain invisibility or transparency to thinking. In other words, most of us, when we're engaging in the process of thought, we just assume it's a perfect reflection of reality, mm -hmm. you know, and we're just waking up to this. In fact, uh, I like to put the date as 1967. That's when cognitive psychology sort of came on the scene. And that's when Nicer was a cognitive psychologist, one of the first cognitive psychologists. And, and he talks about the process of cognition. And he doesn't say that our thoughts are the way reality is. He says, cognition is when we take sensory data. So, you know, information from our senses, sight, hearing, and all that. And we take the information from the outside world and we transform it. And we edit it. And we elaborate parts of it. And then we delete other parts of it. So the thinking process is not a perfect image of reality. In fact, it may be far from a perfect image of reality. And that recognition alone, if you can start to observe your thoughts, recognizing that they are thoughts, they are not perfect reflections of reality, mm -hmm. that alone will send you down a path that will eventually you'll see the self as just another thought. Who I thought I, who I think I am is just another thought. Right. And so, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's nothing wrong with thinking as long as you recognize it for exactly what it is. We have a storyteller in our head, a narrator. 
who's sometimes critical <laughs> of other people and ourselves. You know, it's interesting, Chris, because exploring peace and exploring enlightenment on this podcast and interviewing so many people at first, you know, enlightenment seems like this very, very mystical Jedi type thing. But when it comes down to it, the bottom line is getting that mind to shut up. And that's the very core of everything. This is not an easy process. Now, you just mentioned watch it, observe it. That's like step two. Step one is knowing that you're not your thoughts, right? Step two would be watch it. <laughs> watch it like a movie. And some people might say, well, how do I watch my thoughts? But then we got to go back to, well, you are not your thoughts. It's just like a projection going on a screen, right? So in my experience, there's two ways to nip this in the bud. The first one is to, to watch it and kind of ignore it in a way. Or maybe be mindful of it. Like, oh, that's interesting thought, but you don't do anything about it. You're just watching. You just continue to watch and the gaps will get bigger. Yeah, nice way to put it. The second way is if you have a negative thought or any thought at all, you switch it to love or God. You switch it to a very positive thing and that raises your vibration. That's another way. Centering prayer, that's what centering prayer is about. Um, you know, the work of Dr. Emmett Fox back in the early 1900s. Uh a lot of Christian mystics use that approach. So the question remains, which way is the better way? Or is there another way that I'm not bringing to the table? No, I like the way you put it. And um, you can really imagine starting every day with the choice. You could turn on the news. And if you do, you're going to find very likely you're going to find drama. You're going to find conflict. Um, or you can listen to the birds you know, uh, and so there's a lot of versions of that. But in the morning, when we start our days, I like to think of like creating my reality by making a choice. And, and I'm not saying I'm not judging. Sometimes we're attracted to drama and we know we're attracted to drama and we're not ready to let go of it. So I do a practice with my students where I, I, I challenge them to see how long they can go without complaining. <laughs> and it, I say, let's see if we can go for one day without making a complaint. And you'll see when you stop complaining, everything else changes. And then because you're, you're really, instead of focusing on the negative, you're really shifting over. If, if you're not going to complain, you're going to start finding things that are good in your life. And I get some wonderful responses where students will just be honest with me. And they're like, I love to complain. I have no intention of stopping complaining. <laughs> and, and I think that's, you know, that, that's a certain self-recognition that they're embracing the drama, they're embracing the day, and, and they're going to suffer the consequences of it. But there's a certain honesty where they at least are recognizing the path and what they're choosing. And, but there's not, some people are just, that gets old. And, and so when you were talking about recognizing thoughts, um, part of that process for me is that when you, when you start, it gets, gets old. The entertainment value of thinking is very limited. I mean, thoughts are, that's like the same story every time. And, you know, are you going to play the hero a thousand times or the victim a thousand times? Or you, then you replay stuff from 10 years ago, or then you start thinking about the future. And then you start to recognize that all these thoughts you have, it's, it's kind of remarkable that the thinking mind 40,000 years ago resulted in our survival in a really difficult environment that's almost unimaginable by current standards oh, yeah. because it's so often wrong. <laughs> I mean, when you think, when was the last time, that, you know, and these are wonderful moments where sometimes you'll worry about something. And you're so sure that something you did at work is going to result in something, some, some horrible thing happening. And then it never happens. 
And then we all make a sort of self-commitment. We say, well, I'm not going to worry again. But the next time the thought comes in and it convinces us that this time it's real. This, this time it's, it's good. So we end up getting caught up in that again. It's the same old story. It's the same old uh, uh, song and dance. It's, 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 it's so I think for some people, they just get burned out on it, you know? Um, and I think a lot of us, when I, when I talk and I um, talk about the book and, and it's part of the appeal to the book is that so many of us got onto this path because we were suffering. You know, if I look at myself when I was 20 years old, I was so neurotic and so caught up in thinking that every moment of my life was terrifying. <laughs> and that path that eventually just burns out because you, you, you start to recognize how literally absurd thinking is. It, it just it almost never turns out to be the way you think it will. You really only need it to solve a direct problem or I mean, to communicate. Yeah, like right now. I mean, it, it's a great thing that we have language. It's really nice that we can communicate very effectively right now. Um, but I'm finding that thinking is useful maybe 10 to 20% of our existence. And I'm starting to question even that. Um, to really find the utility of, of, of why we, and, and for me, the most beautiful moments of life are just not thinking, getting in those. And so you mentioned enlightenment a little while ago, and I don't consider enlightenment a very mystical thing. To me, enlightenment is just when the thinking mind either slows so much that it's just, you don't notice it anymore, or it's just off. And, and, and you, all of a sudden you hear the, the bird, you hear nature, you know, you feel the sun, you start getting into actual reality. You, you start being in the moment. Uh, yeah. All it really means is your, your thinking mind stops. But my understanding is your vibration goes way up. Your frequency goes way up because the energy, it's, it's, it's like your digestive system. If you fast, that energy can go to your, you know, the cut on your left arm instead of digesting it, you know, a steak. <laughs> it's the same concept. If your mind stops, there's a lot of energy there. Yeah. Well, are you familiar with the default mode network? No. Okay. So this is, so there's two really interesting things in neuroscience that have happened over the last 50 years. Um, in no self, no problem. I focus on one of them. That's the left brain interpreter mm. and how much time it spends up creating interpretations and stories about reality and, and very rarely is it on track. Um, it's amazing to see some of the patients who just so whimsically, they just make up stories and that's what we do as humans. That's we're, we're storytellers and story makers and that's what we do. But the default mode network is more recent and it's, it's a different set of brain structures more along the midline. And there's one in the back of the brain and one in the front of the brain. And the interesting thing about the default mode network is, is that it's where our, our mind goes when we wander, when we, our mind wandering, you know? So like, you're just sitting here. And I could just sit here. And so imagine I'm, in, I'm in a lab and, and they, they want me in a control condition. So they say, well, why don't you just sit there and do nothing? We're not very good at that. <laughs> you know, the mind starts to wander and it goes in the past and it goes in the future. And, and this is the thinking that so it causes so much of our suffering. And that's what the default mode network is. It's a series of brain structures that light up when we start overthinking. Mm. But the interesting thing is the, the way you put it. The default mode network takes up so much resources. Um, it is literally taking up so much of our energy to keep these brain areas active that if we can, and it, so it, the research shows pretty clearly that when you meditate, the default mode network slows down. Mm. And so when you, you're not talking metaphorically here, you're literally talking about more energy that the brain has when you limit thinking and come, um, you know, it, it's not different than what Alan Watts said in the 60s. Um, if you think all the time, all you think about are thoughts and you live in a world of illusion. So at least once a day, come to your senses and stop thinking. And when you come to your senses, like you said, that, that vibrational energy, I don't think is even a metaphor. I think it's, it's actually tapping into a very accurate description of what happens mm -hmm. when, when you 
stop thinking. And the, the funny thing about thinking is that so much of us, so many of us in the West assume that if we think enough, we'll be creative. And what happens is true creativity comes when you slow thinking down. When you slow thinking down, um, that's when the really uh, beautiful insights come. And, and they're not, you know, uh, the result of thinking. They're, re they're the result of slowing the thinking mind down and getting in touch with actual consciousness. Mm. Yeah. Merging into that source. The source. The God and energy, whatever you want to call God, it. God, um, and that's where all the true creativity comes from. You know, we could say God is the source of, of, of actual creativity. And that's why if you sit and think, you'll come up with ideas, but none of them will be really very good. They'll be okay, you know? And I know when I write, I can, I can always tell like an idea that I myself, my ego came up with, and it'll be okay. And then there's these other, there's other insights that come and you don't know where they come from. I mean, thinking mind is, is clueless. It has no, no idea where this stuff came from. Um, but they're always of, of a different quality. And, and, they're, and you know, they have a sense of beauty to them. And, and, but then there's the irony that you can't take credit for it. It's like, I didn't really come up with this. You know, my ego is clueless where this stuff came up, where it came from. A lot of synchronicities happen too. Things just fall on your lap mysteriously. Yeah. At, at the end of No Self, No Problem, I play around with the idea of non-duality and this idea that, um, that, that we're on kind of an adventure right now. And we're lost in this dream of thinking, but we've left these breadcrumbs for us so we can find our way home. And sometimes the universe shows us these and it will show us a breadcrumb and it will show us who we are. And it will show yeah. us that everything's fine. Like everything is fine right now. Yeah. And you just think it isn't. Right. Like I said, some people enjoy complaining and, and they're, they're so, you know, um, you know, they're so lost in the adventure that uh, they don't want to, they're like, man, that's like being in a movie and you're so caught up in the movie and the person next to you is like, look, it's just a movie. And they're like, just be quiet. Yeah, I'm having too much fun with it. <laughs> they're 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 in dream dream based reality. The, the dream based reality reality is so when you start getting into non duality, you say, well, well, why? You know, why are we doing this? If everything is non dual, if everything is connected, why do we have this dream like state of duality? What's your practice? Because if 20-year-old neurotic Chris, 20-year-old neurotic Chris became Dr. Niebauer, <laughs> a professor. So what was your method of getting out of that neuroses and, and getting to the point where you're a neuroscientist and you're writing these books and you're helping people? I had one insight that maybe you could say sent me on a different path. And I was in the middle of a very intense neurotic episode. And uh, I got very frustrated with it because, again, I would keep putting more effort into trying to get out of the trap. And I didn't see at the time that all the effort you put into trying to get out of the trap is actually getting you into the trap deeper. Yeah. yeah. You know, it reminded me so much of like when you lose something in the cushion of your couch and the more you try to reach for it, the deeper it falls. And we have so many paradoxes like that, but for me, it actually hit that it was my trying to not be neurotic that was my neurosis. And when I saw those mechanics, when I saw that it was like, and, it, and it's interesting, it goes back to um, insights that other people have had too, but I wasn't familiar with these individuals at the time. Uh, Viktor Frankl noticed this too. He noticed that it's the pursuit of happiness that thwarts happiness. And people realize, like, if I go on a mission, and it's a serious mission to be happy, I'm almost certain to fail. Yeah. You know, if I say be happy now, it's just so, so the, the mechanics of that hit me pretty deeply. And I had recognized that it was me trying not to be neurotic that was my neurosis. And I just said, forget it. I said, I'm done with this. And the moment I stopped trying so in the East, they'll call this like, um, you know, non-effort. That's a big thing to, to reckon. So I had acceptance. I had surrender. And I had given up. 
I realized that all of my efforts were futile. In fact, it was worse than being futile. It was my efforts that were getting me stuck in the mess in the first place. Yeah. And when I gave up on all that, I noticed I wasn't neurotic for a while. And so it's the process of thinking that is associated with effort. It's associated with trying. It's associated with whatever's happening right now is not good enough. Now, this is the real funny paradox of all this because it was that thinking program that saved us 40,000 years ago. It was that thinking that nothing is ever good enough. That continuous drive, that continuous search for something better and not being happy in the moment that actually helped the survival of our species that is actually plaguing us right now. Mm-hmm. And I actually call this, I call it Mind 1.0 because it's, it's, an, it's a 40,000 year old program in our yeah. skull. Yeah, it's outdated. Our, our environment changed, but our mind didn't. We were the same biological beings who would do great if you threw me into an ice age. The problem is there's no ice age. And here I am in a comfortable place, living one of the most blessed existences that, that human, humanity has seen. You know, it's, it's like we're, we're, so many of us are so, we have so many gifts and blessings. And, and Even 150 years ago, I mean, we don't have horse and carriages. We, I mean, <laughs> we got electric cars. It's, it's truly, and it can almost take your breath away. With gratitude, if you've ever gotten into that, because again, when you when you uh, see that you're not this mind program, it's like almost all the problems go away, and then to replace that, you get this immense sense of gratitude, and you feel so absolutely blessed and grateful that like I can't believe, like I'm a I, I exist, and not only do I exist, I, I literally have everything. I have no there's everything and people say well this is the experience that everything is perfect as it is Mm. and when you have that recognition then um i don't know for me i can't help i i kind of laugh a little i don't know there's to me the 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 nature of the universe is a humorous one there's a certain um comedic sense to the universe at least from my perspective and so uh you know i can't help but to sort of laugh at you know the 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 situation we're in where uh, you could find yourself complaining one moment, thinking your life is an absolute disaster, and then a slight shift in recognizing the thinking mind, you can immediately see that you've had everything you needed all along. I, I liken it to, um, I don't know if you've had this experience, but you know, you think you lost your cell phone. And so here's me, and maybe I'm getting old, but I'll be walking around, I'm like looking for my cell phone. And then all of a sudden I look and I see it. I had it. I had it the whole time. Yeah. And I start to laugh a little, you know, because I find this. And and to me, that's a very similar experience to the recognition that you have everything you need already. It's already here. So there's no effort you have to put into to to be happy. There's no effort you need to uh, improve your life. There's no effort. You don't need to improve yourself. The only thing that. if you want to get to the state is to recognize thinking, recognize how the thoughts are not good reflections of reality. Most of the time they give rise to illusion. And one of the illusions is the sense of self. And also so many of the problems that we think we have. And with that recognition, then it seems to be a pretty big shift in our experience. Our subconscious can catastrophize, you know, uh, uh, I, I remember I used to have these really weird thoughts of getting into a car accident. I've never been in a bad car wreck in my life, a fender bender here and there, yeah. <laughs> but not a bad wreck. And like, where's that coming from? Where's that weird fear coming from? It's yeah. like subconscious somewhere. I don't know if it's a past life thing. I have no idea. But what do you do with the thought? Do you laugh at it? <laughs> I well, not at first. I mean, at first, it's it's a matter of uh, fear, anxiety. Um, but then you recognize one of the important recognitions when it comes to all of this is the 
recognition that like none of your thoughts are your own. I mean, we have this strange thing when we start asking the question, who am I? And we start exploring and we, so we think we're peeling away the layers and we're getting to something genuine. And, and so maybe I'm an introvert and I think I've discovered something about myself, but that's not really accurate because so many of our thoughts are just, it's part of the mind program. It's, it's, it's part of the collective society. I mean, we didn't invent the language we speak, the voice in our head that has most of what we consider thinking is just the voice in our head, it's language. I didn't invent this language and I didn't invent, you know, thoughts of catastrophe. Um, those are things, you know, are, are, it's the society, it's the collective. It, it comes up with these rather odd thoughts. It convinces us that they're real and then we suffer from them. And um, when you start recognizing that 99% of your thoughts, I mean, I'd probably say hundred, but we'll be careful. 99% of your thoughts aren't even your own thoughts. They didn't come from you, you know? And what would you have had that same thought if you lived 200 years ago? No, there's no cars. <laughs> there's no cars. You wouldn't have had that thought. <laughs> and so, you know, that this is the price we pay for exposing ourselves to um, social media. And, and, and like I said, in the morning, you've got a and choice. Television and television, like, you know, social media is only 15 years old for the most part. Uh, watching the movie Die Hard in the 80s, you know, the, mm -hmm. the violence yeah. is astronomical. Horror movies, astronomical violence. This is stored in us. And it comes down to where we started with this, with this choice. You know, you may want to have a really scary adventure, you know, and you may want to have that narrow escape of the hero. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just you're going to pay a price for it because you can't play the hero without having some sense of fear, without having some sense of you have to have real danger. Um, and, and it has to be life and death, you know, and, and the payoff of that. And this works for some people. The payoff of that is you get to kind of embrace that archetypal hero. The negative side of that is that you have to live with the fear. You have to live with the anxiety. And uh, not everyone, you know, like I said, the adventures of the hero um, or being the victim, like all that stuff sort of just wears itself out after a while. But then the, the other side to this coin, Chris, is there's a big demographic of people that are into the law of attraction, manifesting as it's called now. A hundred years ago, they called it demonstrating. Now it's manifesting. Uh, not that, you know, if you think about a Lamborghini, all of a sudden you have a Lamborghini, but we can sort of manifest good health. We can manifest, you know, financial security, I don't know if you can manifest an exact amount, but, you know, things like this to make sure that you're safe, you know, and things, things like this. But what I found some very interesting uh, experiences with what, you know, uh, the law of attraction is that the more I can turn down thinking, the more kind of abundance the universe keeps providing me. Hmm. And, um, and maybe it was there to begin with. It just feels like it because I'm turning thought down and recognizing that everything was already there. Well, I've always kind of used the metaphor of a video game and that we're in a video game. And the objective of a video game is to beat the game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and to beat this game is to become so-called enlightened. Uh, there's... That's what's been said for 5,000 years. That's, that's the underlining message because, you know, and then, then you go into the reincarnation thing. And so, you know, the Buddha called it a, a no returner. You know, once you become a Buddha, there's no returning. You're, you're done. And so Christianity, this would be heaven, right? You know, keeping it a little human-like. <laughs> uh beating the game would be slowing down the thoughts as we've been talking about and getting out of this false self so that we don't have the anxiety. We don't have the depression and we're, we're detached in a way that we're an observer.
I think at the end of the book, I talk about having like, you know, one foot in each reality. And so, you know, um, recognizing, being grounded in the idea that the ego thoughts, none of them are real. It is like a video game. But that's the fun thing about a video game. If you really, you know, when you, we start playing a video game, you can get sucked. It's very seductive. You can get pulled into it and buy into it. And it can be very exciting. It can be a, a really interesting adventure. As long as you don't take it too seriously. Mm. You know, if you, if, to me, that's one of the biggest, so people ask me about the left and right sides of the brain. And I, the way I put it in a, just a very practical way is that the left brain is very serious. It, it, it takes everything um, like it's life and death. The right brain is far more playful. And so it's a really, it, I mean, it's a really adventurous game to play both at the same time. Mm. And to, to be grounded in the idea that, you know, I am eternal. Uh, my true being is beyond. It's a mystery that the thinking mind will never know. But then... I'm still going to have a little fun at a sporting event and maybe I will cheer for one team, sure. you know? So, so I was at my son's soccer oh, last weekend. And so you get caught up in this and, and, and you have sure. fun and you enjoy it, but not so much that you are totally lost. You know, um, I, I, it's interesting using myself as, you know, on my journey, I, uh, I, I got off of the drama entertainment wise. I, I can't even watch a movie. I, 10 minutes, I'll turn it off. I just can't connect anymore. But I love sports. And I had to really think about why. And it's because it's reality. <laughs> it's either two guys or two teams competing. It's real. There's a referee. There's people in the crowd. It's not diehard. It's not breaking bad. And and so I, I think that speaks to what you were just saying, that you know you can you know, dive into more of a reality-based entertainment. And it's, even though you might get into it and, you know, you get the crazy soccer mom who's just like, no, you know, you stepped on Billy's foot, you know? But to me, that's better than watching Freddy Krueger. I think it was Paul Dreyard was talking about, uh, you know, simulacra and, and this idea that, you know, one of the problems with our culture is we've gotten so far away from reality. We have like simulations and you know artificial this and and we're so far from the actual real right now that uh it, it, you know to experience the real world for some people is is kind of a experience of itself you know and i mean if you think of social media how many friends you have, i mean they're not real friends and um artificial flavors that to trick your brain and to to thinking that this is a real strawberry when it's, you know, you know, and so we we live in a very interesting time when, you know, this is why people have the simulation hypothesis. This is why this feels, this could be a simulation because we know that we fall for it so easily. It makes me think of the movie, the matrix, which is arguably the most important movie of this generation. It was 20 years ago. Yeah. But that movie is, one big metaphor <laughs> it is and it shook neuroscience it shook and it's and it's a play from descartes who asked a very similar question and you could actually say it even goes back to you know the allegory of the cave but it was put in a very modern way that people instantly related to it and made you think you know that's the, we say well who am i and uh know thyself and then and and uh you know you got to get through those layers of social construction and you, and you, you know, uh, there's so many things that we live in this world that are nothing more than people go to work and, um, you know, they're just people in a building, but suddenly it takes on this life. Like this is a real business and they buy into the business and they think it's, it has a life of its own and then it, it, it becomes terribly serious. And it's like, it's nothing more than a collective hallucination between, you know, 10 people but suddenly it becomes like an actual, you know, uh, company. And that's funny because, uh, you know, what we call corporation, the root of that word means you have a body and it's funny. It, it has no body, it has no physicality to it at all. Right. That's well said. Yeah. Well, you know, being a university professor, I tell people like, 
you know, the university doesn't really exist. You know, it's just a, a collective hallucination. We just all agree that there's such a thing as a university. <laughs> yeah, and so we all, we gather on a campus and everyone we, have, we have emails with a special thing at the end. Yeah. Yeah. And we have buildings and, you know, and, and we all buy into it. And at the end of this whole process, you get this piece of paper that says that you did this and, sure. you know, and it's, sure. you know, it's, again, it, there's nothing wrong with that. It can be fun and it can be a, like a decent adventure if you make it into that. But if you're, ter- if you're really serious about it, and I mean, my kids are 13 and 17, they're already stressed about college. And I, I always tell people where it's such a fascinating time right now, because when we talk about enlightenment, the closest place is also the furthest place. And what I mean by that is when you get very close to this insight about thoughts being nothing more than just your thinking rather than actual reality, the mind compensates. It's like when I said, you know, don't think of the number 13 and that's all you can think of. In the same way, when you get really close to this insight, the mind will crank up the reality of thinking so that you're more convinced it's like it's bringing you back to the reality of thoughts well that just happened to me i was doing really well spiritual practice the gaps so beautiful then all of a sudden bam <laughs> what they call dark night of the soul yep fear yeah fear 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 where did this come from <laughs> It seems like a common experience, to be honest. Um, sometimes you can get very, very close to enlightenment. Sometimes you can get very, very close to feeling like this is going to last forever, that this, this kind of peace and tranquility is, is, is permanent. But there is some strange thing about clinging to anything permanent. And then, you know, something comes along and reminds you of the nature of reality being changed. You know, every, so, you know, if that's... It, uh, you know, so you've, you've, that's the interesting thing about enlightenment. And if you cling to it, you know, and it's a very, I mean, it feels so good to have those gaps to, I, when you have those gaps between thinking, it's so perfect that when you start thinking again, you're like, I want more of that. Yeah. And I want to live. I want that to be the ground of my being. And here's the irony. The more you want that, the less it's going to happen. Yep. So you have to have enlightenment, you, you know, to make the whole system work is to have enlightenment, but then not clinging to it. Yep. And uh, it's a tricky, it's a tricky business. Well, the so, best way to do it is just to be present. Just to be present. And um, I, I can really relate. I've had a lot of experiences where um, I really felt like I was at a place that was untouchable. That it was like, nothing is going to phase me. Nothing is going to shake me or anything. And sometimes it could be surprising how that shifts all of a sudden. You're like, where did this come from? Yeah. My ego was assaulted because I was embarrassed. I have a and- podcast called inner peace with Dr. Reese. <laughs> uh, I was just on a local news network right before the pandemic talking about inner peace and, you know, all of a sudden, Bam! <laughs> Just a smack in the head. It's hysterical in a way. Yeah. You know, it's, well, see how you see how it's like you're laughing. Like there is just something like you can't help it. It's it's like the universe has a weird sense of humor. It's almost like saying, "Look, you know, you think you're so like I, I love one of Ram Dass's quotes. One of his other quotes, he said, you think you're so enlightened, go live with your family again.' And you know." There's a sense where like, look, you know, you can come a long way. That's why I honestly, I don't worry too much about enlightenment. And I don't worry about like, I actually called my first book, The Neurotic's Guide to Avoiding Enlightenment. And so I actually was like, look, avoid enlightenment at all costs. Almost just as as a game. Like if you avoid it, it's more likely that you'll stumble across it by accident. Hmm. Um, if, If it's your, if it's your, if, if, if you're pursuing this path of enlightenment, if you, cause you know, the, the thinking mind is so tied up in effort and goals and, and, it, and again, it's projecting into the future. This is how I want to be. And, you know, you get a taste of it, a taste of the peace of non-thinking The thinking mind turns back on and it says, wow, this is really perfect. I want more of it. But then you get that irony of you can't 
be at peace while you're thinking because peace is not thinking. And so, and, and, and the thinking mind wants to reestablish itself. So it comes it, using its old tricks, which fear and anxiety are two of its best tricks. Yeah, my fear was intense. I lost my sleep, never experienced anything like it. Isn't it remarkable how you can be lying in bed and everything's perfect? But the mind will be so convincing, like a bad movie or something. It will be so convincing that this is wrong. Something is wrong. This has to happen. Um, you know, everything's going to fall apart. It, it tells some story. And we just fall for it, you know? I mean, I, so, and, and, then you, uh, and then you say, you know, what is the universe teaching me with this? You know, it's another lesson look for those breadcrumbs. You look for like, okay, this is another hint that I've left myself. You know, um, I think these things happen and they happen, um, you know, it's not random, you know, I mean, it was, that happened for, for something behind it. Maybe, you know, these experiences happen and then you go way deeper than you ever thought you were, would. Uh, I've changed. Time. I've changed so much. Uh, a lot. It's it's like I was nudged to improve in this area, that area, and that area, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, even something as simple as getting your eating habits, you know, <laughs> more disciplined. You know, we're so far from nature right now that some of the most basic things of eating, you know, we don't really know how to eat, so we've got to watch you know, podcast on how to tear away all these cultural things that taught us how the wrong way to eat, the wrong way to breathe. Um, And we're working. So we're working on all that. And, uh, you know, it can be a little overwhelming, I think, for a lot of people. Um, Just something as simple as breath work. I'll I'll talk to people and, you know, it it just feels like, look, you know, let me work on one thing at a time. And so, you know, you've got, but you've got eating. Um, like I tell people, look, you know, if you get up and have a pot of coffee and watch the news and then complain that you're anxious the rest of the day, you really have no one to blame but yourself. You know, you can't fill your body with a stimulant and then expose yourself to drama and then expect the mind, which is programmed to respond to that. Um, mm-hmm. So you become more conscious and you say, well, Maybe I have too much caffeine and you start becoming aware of how caffeine affects you. Some people it doesn't affect them at all, but others, that's the thing. I've got students, they'll start talking to me about anxiety. And the first thing I ask them is about stimulants. You know, what kind of stimulants are you, you know, and they'll, they'll like, well, you know, just a couple of coffees every morning. And for some people that can be it. And so you say, okay, let me change that a little bit. It's like a, one of the fears that I was experiencing, heavy fears, was loss of parents. I guess it was uh, perception of loss yeah. is a term, right? I read that you lost your dad. How did you deal? It immediately threw me into neurosis. Mm. Uh, death how, how long ago was it? Um, I was 20. And uh, his death was very unexpected. It was by suicide. So none of us were prepared. Mm. Um, And uh, I think when I look back, what what really affected me was how his death affected everyone around him. Like I saw death as the enemy because I saw how much sadness it brought to people and how, um, you know, uncontrolled it is, you know, no, he, did this, you know, no one had any say in it. It just uh, happened. And then everyone else suffered from this. And um, I, I really felt like death was uh, like an enemy. Mm-hmm. It, it was something that had to be uh, fought. And I was terrified of death. So that one, that from that moment, uh, I had instantly gone into a world where so if I was say 22 right now, most of my consciousness was taken up with thoughts that I was dying, mm. that I was always dying. 
I was continuously terrified. Catastrophizing about death. My, my heart's going to stop. Uh, my throat's going to close up. I had all kinds of, it would manifest in slightly different ways, but it was an incredible force. Mm. And um, so, yeah, that's. Um, and you had to let go. And, and I had to, because I realized that it was me fighting it. That was the problem. Yes. And you have to just say, I'm, I'm helpless. You know, that surrender moment is, 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 and there's no way to intellectually tell people how to surrender. I mean, we can give hints, we can talk, but it's such an inner process that you'll surrender when you're ready. And when you do, it will be transformative and it will be, uh, you know, you look back, you know, how, 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 how did I get, how, how, why was I so afraid? Yeah. You know, what did it, how did it convince me that it was the enemy? And, and you look back and, um, you know, but at the time it seemed in, it, nothing could have seemed more real than that at the time. Here's a deep question. Your dad and most people that commit suicide are caught in their thoughts. So how do you think this information that you have now, this book and all this wisdom, the stuff we're talking about right now, do you think something like that could have helped him? That's, yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly what, so, so my experience is to give you a little more detail. So my dad was in physically good health. He was fine and there was nothing wrong. We had no real problems. Financially, we were okay. Uh, you know, uh, really no actual problems. And at the same time, uh, my girlfriend at the time from high school, her dad um, uh, enjoyed life, uh, but he had cancer. Mm. So physically, he... It, that's a real problem. You know, he's, he's, he, he has no ment. it's not his mind, it's not his thoughts, but he was dealing with cancer and died very shortly for about maybe six months. And it was a very aggressive form of cancer. And, and I remember just being really puzzled by this. Like, here's one person, like my dad, who's physically fine, but his thoughts ended up convincing him that life was not worth living. Mm. But at the same time, here's another person who seems to have the exact opposite problem. Their thoughts are fine, but the physical is uh, taking life away from them. Right. And so I, that, that, that puzzle sort of stuck with me for a very long time. But yeah, a lot of what I do, when you see how, I mean, what could be more powerful than thoughts convincing you to end your own life? I, I think... What you just said is, 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 again, the puzzle. It's very powerful. And I think that speaks to people to take care of their health mentally and physically. And there needs to be a balance there. Because if the mental health is out of whack, it can go all the way to something like suicide. And if the physical health is out of whack, it can go all the way to something like cancer. And you had to go through all this in your early 20s. It was two, bi two big deaths to puzzle you. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, people will talk about their suffering and their early suffering, but from my end, it was all lessons. It was all things that, you know, um, you know, it was the universe kind of teaching me, you know, along the way. And, and uh, you know, I, uh, but it's a very uh, profound, it's, it, it's a very deep experience to, to see that in your life where thoughts are capable of convincing you to take your own life. It's, you know, and it, and it sent me into a neurosis that lasted at least 10 years. Mm. Um, but out of all that comes this work and comes what we're doing right now. And, you know, even if one person just, you know, is listening to the podcast and, and, and just has that insight that maybe everything is okay. Mm. It's, it's my thoughts that are tricking me into believing that I have all these problems that I don't have. Even your old girlfriend's father was okay. It's just the, you know, the body was going to deteriorate and, and 
it sucks, but he still had a choice to be happy. That, you know, I think you, you hit it. I think that's the one choice we have that uh, we make all the time. And, and, and it's just, are you ready to be happy? I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it sounds kind of simple, but it's like I said in the morning. Well, you know, what are you, gonna, what are you doing? Are you choosing happiness? You know, because if you're not choosing happiness and then you're complaining that you're not happy, that's a little strange, you know, but if, if you're choosing happiness, um, yeah. it's it, everything. It's like, you know, it's like some um, multi-dimensions. It's like these dimensions of reality and like the many worlds hypothesis. And there's this like, you know, we create different worlds when we start choosing happiness. Yeah. And, and reality responds to it. And, and it's almost like the world says, look, do you want to be miserable? Reality says, let's do it right. You want to be, we're going to make your life miserable. And the more you start complaining about, and then more misery hits you, and then you choose happiness. And all of a sudden, everything starts working in your favor. And you're kind of like, it's, it's weird how everything's just, you know, the synchronicity, everything just sort of falls into place because you've chosen happiness. And you were, maybe you were ready for it. Um, you know, and, and when I look back, if, if I was listening to myself right now when I was 20, I would probably be really skeptical. Mm. But that's okay because you, you, you can, all you need to do is get a little crack in the kind of armor of the ego, just a little bit into that nature of the self, just a little bit into the nature of thinking, just a, a bit of skepticism. And you'll start, and that can work, you know, like you said, the gaps get bigger. Just notice one gap, just one gap in your thinking. And as long as you notice one, you've had the experience and you're gonna be more likely to pick it up. The mind has a certain momentum to it. It's like a big truck, you know, if you get a big truck moving, it's really hard to stop. Mm -hmm. So you slow it down, little, little at a time. You know, you notice the one gap and then you're, you notice another and that's going and you don't realize it at the time. But what you're doing there is you're choosing happiness. You, you're choosing it the whole time. It may not be like a light. So maybe I choose to run a marathon. I'm not just going to go out and run 26 miles. Right. You know, I'm going to go do little like I might run a half a mile and then a half a mile. And um, and then eventually you're running the marathon, but it's the same thing with choosing happiness. You don't just choose happiness. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, it doesn't, it's not going to happen instantly for many of us. It's a choice, but it, it, it works its way in over time. At least that's what I found. Before I wrap this up, where can somebody find you and come say hello? And where can they get your book? So the no self, no problem on Amazon, but it's on, at a lot of other, it's on most places where you can find any book. And the new book, which is really a workbook, because what I found is that, mm. you know, these conversations are wonderful. Um, and, and, but the exercise, people need exercises. They, you know, you can't fix a thinking problem with more thinking. And so you need exercises. You need, like you said, the gap. You need something that's gonna point people towards the experience so they feel for themselves that there is a gap between thinking. And so it's, I put a collection of exercises together that help people kind of really just helps them experience that gap. And that should be out uh, early in 2022. So something like January or something that should be out. And you can actually pre-order it. It's on Amazon right now. Just Chris Nebar, PhD, I think uh, on YouTube. And I have a home, um, I have a webpage. I think it's Chris Nebar, PhD, um, where I've got all the information kind of put together and a lot of different clips and interviews and that kind of thing. Knowing now what I know about you with everything that happened to your dad, is it safe to say that this work that you're doing is personal? Hmm. That's, a, that's an interesting way to put it. Um, I, th I think it's deep, the, the, the beginning was deeply personal because I found myself in a situation that was such suffering that for all I knew, if I went down that path, I may have taken that same option my father did. 
I mean, it was such unbearable suffering to just continuously be tortured by thinking. Um, so the beginning felt personal, but then you go into the very impersonal. And that's the wonderful thing about not thinking. You realize it's, it's not about you anymore. And that's where people feel this collective, they feel like it's not my consciousness. It's consciousness, it's not mine. It's the same, the, so the same consciousness you experience is the same consciousness I experience. So you immediately go from the personal to something that's actually really impersonal. Mm -hmm. This is something's collective that we're all, we all have this. Every human being has, and other species, we've, we've some, you know, a collective sense of consciousness. And, um, and you feel part of a collective that at least I, I would say transcends the kind of collective we feel from an ego perspective. And so we can very, feel very close to people with friends and, and all that, but you can be alone and maybe not even have any friends. But if you're in touch with that collective sense of consciousness, I don't think you ever feel alone. Chris, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for listening to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese. If this episode opened your heart, feel free to share on social media and tell your loved ones. Also, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, may peace be with you.